that have been happening recently, um, the Capitol insurrection, police involved, killing of George Floyd and others, the protests, um, the shooting in Kenosha. Many people are concerned about race relations and systemic racism. They're asking questions, seeking answers, wanting to know what can be done. And they're wanting to know about American history that hasn't been taught. Hello, everyone. I'm Beverly Taylor, and this is the 411 Live, real people, real talk. I'm really excited about this podcast because um, I'm welcoming Reggie Jackson, and with him, we're going to dive in our country's uh, racial hierarchy, its impact, the future. Reggie is an outstanding speaker. Um, He is the co-founder of Nurturing Diversity Partners, the past head griot at the um, America's Black Holocaust Museum. Reggie is um, has received more w- awards than I can even talk about. So just say he's an award-winning speaker. Reggie, thank you for joining us. Yeah, it's, it's a pleasure to be here with you, Beverly. Thank you for the invitation. I appreciate it. Absolutely. How, first of all, let's talk about how do you describe uh, nurturing diversity partners? We are a diversity, equity, and inclusion um, firm. Uh, We do uh, trainings, we do workshops, we do facilitated dialogue with a variety of different types of organizations. We've done work with faith-based organizations, uh, with municipalities like Milwaukee County, um, the city of Wauwatosa. We've worked with multiple school districts. Uh, We've done work with uh, local uh, firms, national firms. Uh, we've done work in over 40 different communities here in the state of Wisconsin and done work in over 20 different states around the country. So, uh, you know, we try to use our platform uh, to inform people, uh, to engage them in building historical and cultural literacy so that we can learn how to communicate better uh, across different cultures and develop uh, empathy so that we can work towards racial repair and reconciliation. You know, one of our big things for me, I think it's a big problem, obstacle. We have trouble talking to each other and really listening to each other. And it's really good to get diverse groups together to talk about some of the more difficult topics. And so I guess that's kind of what you're doing. Absolutely. You know, we we use a, a method that teaches people how to actively listen We have a facilitated dialogue method that we call the caring circle, which teaches people to listen in the way that we generally don't as Americans. We, we, you know, when we have a conversation with someone and they say something that triggers us in some way, we can't wait to respond to it. So we start thinking about our response and we don't hear the rest of what they have to say. So we teach people how to actively listen. And we also believe that when you learn more about kind of how we got to where we are, you can have what I call productive conversations. You're having conversations then based on actually knowing what happened instead of just the assumptions that we we generally make. Yeah. You know, we have some things in common. Uh, We both were born in the South. I was born in Tennessee, West Tennessee. How about you? 
uh, north central Mississippi, not far from probably where you were born. I'm 70 miles from Memphis, okay, uh, Tennessee. Okay. I'm right there. I'm near Jackson, and then Memphis, what, 70 miles away. Okay. Um, and we both went to predominantly white elementary schools. Well, you know, what's, what's interesting for me is when I was in Mississippi, my last year in Mississippi was second grade. Mm -hmm. And that was, uh, I think, the second year the schools in Mississippi had been integrated, you know, many years after the Brown versus Board of Education decision. Uh, my family moved to Milwaukee in 1973. Mm -hmm. And from third through eighth grade in Milwaukee, I didn't have a single white classmate at all. Wow. I didn't have white classmates in Milwaukee until I got to high school. I caught the city bus all the way to the south side and went to Milwaukee Tech High School. That's the first time that I had white classmates in Milwaukee. And, you know, people say, you know, you left, you know, segregated Mississippi and moved to segregated Milwaukee. I, I didn't notice, you know. <laughs> I was, um, I went to school and, and you know, they, they would have these boundary lines. And my house was right on that boundary line, line but it was on the white side. Mm -hmm. So I went to the predominantly white school until like seventh grade. And then, mm -hmm. you know, everything was, was integrated. And um, fortunately for me, like 50-50 within my, my class. Mm -hmm. But when we talk about um, the different things that are going on here, uh, I think I mentioned to you earlier that I was reading a book about the Great Migration. And it's talking about the southerners coming up black southerners coming up to, towards the north in the 30s the 40s and the 50s and the what they were running from and then what they came to um, a lot of times their expectations were maybe a little higher um, but it, it was all so interesting and I'm thinking looking at our history it ha or where we are now, it's, it seems to me that it's so important to know that history back there to understand the present. And I know you're a big historian, so are you with me on that? <laughs> oh, absolutely. You know, I, I say to people all the time, you can't understand today unless you look at what happened yesterday. And to understand the, the journey of, of people from our community, from the South, uh, who left the South, you know, most of us were taught in school about the Great Migration, uh, what we may have heard, which was probably very little, if anything. We were told that, you know, black people left Mississippi and Arkansas and Alabama to come to the north to, you know, to get better jobs. And that was that was true to a certain extent. But really, the Great Migration started uh, in right, 1910 when you started to see blacks leave the south, but not only come to the Midwest, to Chicago and Detroit. They went to New York. They went to you know Portland, Oregon. They went to Los Angeles, California. Uh, they went to Phoenix, Arizona. They, they went to a lot of different places around the country. And, you know, as that kind of decade progressed, uh, the, the year right after uh, we saw World War I end, uh, and black GIs came back from fighting for democracy, and they were lynched in their uniforms. And so they were not only fleeing, you know, very bad jobs, but they were also fleeing the violence. And that's the part that's left out generally when we talk about Jim Crow. You know, those 90 years from 1865 until uh, 1955 when Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat 
on that bus in Montgomery. That's mm -hmm. the least known part of black history and that it really is the most violent period of time in our history. You know, there were uh, nearly 4,000 dead, uh, you know, um, documented lynchings of blacks, but probably way more than that. Uh, you had dozens of anti-black race riots perpetrated by white people all over the country, not just in the South. Uh, you know, you had lynchings that occurred in Alabama and Georgia, but you had lynchings in, in Minnesota, in Duluth, Minnesota, one of the most famous lynchings. You had a lynching right here in Milwaukee uh, in 1861 that people generally don't know about. Uh, and you had these anti-black race riots uh, all over the country in Chicago, in New York, uh, California, Arizona, uh, Florida, Connecticut. I mean, places people would just never imagine. Right. Um, you know, the, probably the most famous of those is Tulsa, Oklahoma in 1921, uh, where hundreds of blacks were murdered. But people don't know that those whites who came into their community looted the entire community. They looted their homes, looted their businesses, looted their churches, stole everything they wanted, uh, and then set fire to 35 square blocks of Tulsa's black community. Uh, they're in, you know, a, a prosperous business district called the Greenwood District, which many people refer to as Black, black Wall, Wall Street, Street right? because of the successful businesses. Right. The largest black-owned hotel in the country was in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and was destroyed uh, in that, that anti-black race riot in 1921. But two years before Tulsa, you had uh, 25 uh, anti-black race riots around the country in what is known by historians as Red Summer. So we were fleeing, we were fleeing the South for our lives, literally. Uh, and we came to the North thinking that things would be so much better. We left Jim Crow to South and came to Jim Crow to North. Right. Because when we came to places in the North, we weren't welcome. Uh, and unfortunately for, for Milwaukee, uh, blacks didn't come to Milwaukee in the early part of the Great Migration. So we never had a really long period of time to build a very large black uh, community. Uh, we started to come after, you know, World War II started and the businesses here, the factories started to open up to black workers. And that was when the black population really started to accelerate. There were only about 9,000 black people in Milwaukee in 1940, but by 1950 it was 21,000, right. 62,000 by 1960, 105,000 by 1970. And we came because of the good jobs in Milwaukee. That's why my family came. Good jobs. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, it just didn't last very long. No, we, we came when the jobs started to go away. And, you know, it, my research has shown that from 1963 until 2017, the city of Milwaukee lost 92,000 factory jobs. So those were family supporting wage jobs, paid you a good salary, you know, gave you a good pension when you retired, mm -hmm. good benefits, health benefits, health benefits were free. You didn't have to pay anything for your health care. Uh, and in 1970, blacks in Milwaukee had the seventh highest median family income for blacks in the country. Our poverty rate was 22% below the national average for blacks in 1970. Milwaukee is one of the best places to live in the country if you're a black person in 1970. Uh, mm. But those jobs started to go away and the, the recessions of the early 1980s, particularly the one from 81 to 82, devastated Milwaukee. We've literally lost over 52,000 of those manufacturing jobs since 1982. And you started to see the impact of people losing good jobs that were replaced by poorly paid service sector jobs. Right. And that's what's happened to Milwaukee, but nobody really knows it. Let me go back and we're going to come back to that because you've brought us up to present day. Um, when you were talking about the, the lynching, and um, I know, as I mentioned in the intro, you're associated with uh, America's Black Holocaust Museum, and I met James Cameron. Um, I interviewed him, 
and a fascinating man, but you had a much closer relationship with him, and he is uh, a survivor of lynching, lynching, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, uh, Dr. Cameron ended up being, you know, one of my best friends. Uh, he became my mentor those last five and a half, half years of his life. Uh, we became very close friends. I spent a lot of time with him at the museum as well as at his home. Uh, and he, he taught me a lot of the, the work that I do now is a direct result of, of my learning under him. You know, he survived a lynching at the age of 16 in Marion, Indiana, but he also survived witnessing a lynching when he was eight years old. His, his family was living in Birmingham, Alabama, and he was grabbed by a group of white men and forced to watch a black man being lynched when he was an eight-year-old kid. And then eight years later, living in Marion, Indiana, uh, he survived the lynching. Uh, his two friends, Abram Smith and Thomas Shipp, were killed. Uh, he was taken out of the jail, had a rope around his neck, was brought up to the base of the tree. He thought he was going to die, but he says that God sent an angel to speak to that crowd and told him to leave this young man alone. And, and they, they, they let him go. They let him stagger back to the jail. And the, the, the photograph of that lynching that he survived in Marion, Indiana, most people think it's a southern lynching, but it was actually in north central Indiana. Mm. Uh, it became the most famous lynching photograph of all time. Um, and most people that have seen it because it's been in movies and documentaries, they think it's in the south. And they don't know that there's supposed to be a third man hanging from that tree. Uh, and that that image led a young uh, Jewish poet and, and songwriter, a Abel Mirapol, to write a, a poem called uh, Bitter Fruit, uh, which eventually became the song Strange Fruit. He wrote the song Strange yeah. Fruit that Billie Holiday performed and made famous. The people don't connect all of those things with Dr. Cameron or with America's Black Holocaust Museum, which, by the way, he founded when he was 74 years old. Oh, wow. Imagine what you're going to be doing at the age of 74. Yes. I'm yes. hoping I'm not doing that type of work <laughs> when I'm 74. I'm hoping I'm relaxing somewhere. <laughs> so wow. he's dedicated. He had a vision. He had a vision, and he followed through with it. Um, you know, talking about that whole thing of this happened to him in Indiana, you know, there's this thing. Sometimes you talk to people, me being here and being a native of, the, of the, uh, Tennessee, you hear people say stuff like, you know, that racism down south is, you know, just, oh, but, you know, it's better up here and this kind of thing. And, you know, I'm thinking, uh, I don't know, because, you know, I was a reporter in Huntsville, Alabama, and I covered a, an anniversary rally and march of the Klan in Pulaski, Tennessee. It was, and it was a joint. It was Klan and skinheads. And I covered that, and a lot of those people were not from that area. They were from California. They were from Midwestern states. They were from New York. And I'm just looking around, and I'm like, uh, you know, okay, this is a myth buster right here. <laughs> uh, so, so I just, to me, it's just people need, need a broader idea of, you know, racism or where the problem might be or where it's situated. This is a national issue, not a southern issue, a national issue. You know, that's my yeah. two cents. <laughs> You're absolutely right, because what people in the North like to do is point the finger at those bad racist people down in the mm -hmm. South as if they are somehow, you know, not associated with them. But people don't know there's been three versions of the Ku Klux Klan, the original one born in Pulaski, Tennessee, mm -hmm. right after the Civil War ended. Uh, they, they eventually were outlawed by the federal government. 
literally outlawed by the federal government because they were so vicious, so violent. They killed, uh, beat, maimed so many black people that the federal government stepped in and outlawed the Ku Klux Klan. In 1871, uh, they were reborn in 1915 in Stone Mountain, Georgia. Uh, and then that version of the Klan became the biggest and most popular Klan. By the 1920s, the early 1920s, uh, they had uh, claverns, as they called them, in, in every state in the country. Uh, Indiana had more Ku Klux Klan members than any other state. Uh, Wisconsin was very active, not only in Beloit, uh, but also in Milwaukee. The Ku Klux Klan in Milwaukee had a big rally in 1923 at Kern Park, where they were celebrating, you know, all of their accomplishments. And they used to have their regular meetings in the same building that the Pabst Theater is in. Oh, wow. uh, so they were very active here. And, you know, uh, what people, many people don't understand is that a lot of the, the people who are white in Wisconsin and Minnesota and other places, uh, many of those people moved from the South. And we talk about, you know, the, the legacy of the South, the Confederacy. People don't realize that up until very recently there was a Confederate a memorial uh, in Madison, Wisconsin. There was a cemetery in Madison that honored Confederate uh, veterans who had died in the Civil War right here in good old Madison, Wisconsin. Oh, wow. And, you know, my nickname, my nickname for Wisconsin, you know, I, I used to joke, you know, I'm from a part of me is from Mississippi, part of me is Wisconsin because I, I grew up here in my early years. But I, I refer to Wisconsin as Mississippi because racism is just as oh. bad here as it is down south. You gotcha. know, that, a lot of, you know, and you, Beverly, I know you've heard this. Mm -hmm. You probably even said this before. I'd rather have the racists that tell you right to your face than the ones that smile in your face and pretend they like you. Yep. Uh, so a lot of black people prefer the racists down south uh, to the racists in Wisconsin. But listen, racism is, is embedded in America. I say racism is as American as apple pie. Yeah, unfortunately, unfortunately. Hey, we're going to take a break. We're going to come back and talk a little bit more with Reggie Jackson. You don't want to miss this. Stay with us. Stay with us. <laughs> every day, every day, millions of people are connecting. And even though we're overcoming obstacles, watching each other's backs, and banding together, we should still make an effort. We should still make an effort to get to know each other on a deeper level. Father, cosplayer, mentor, actor. It's time we take a step forward. It's time we take a step forward. Come together. And discover how accepting our differences can make, make us stronger. If I could be you, and you could be me for just one hour. If we could find a way to get inside each other's minds. Walk a mile in my shoes. Walk a mile in my shoes Well, before you abuse, criticize and accuse Walk a mile in my shoes Welcome back to the 411 Live. I'm talking to Reggie Jackson, and we've covered a lot of ground, but um, we've gone, talked about lynching, talked about black folks migrating to the north, and we dabbled in present day. Let's go back. Okay, so folks come to Milwaukee. It's the 60s, 70s, whatever. Things are looking, things are good. I mean, they, they're making good jobs. You were talking about, you know, health care and all these things, pensions and stuff. And black folks were able to acquire things. They had, them, had money, and they could acquire things easily because 
a while back we talked about the Sears catalog. Remember this? Mm-hmm. And through the Sears catalog, you could you could order, and nobody knew what color you were, so you could get the things and pay the same price as anybody else, right? Mm-hmm. So people were able to to really kind of enjoy um, the fruits of their labor, so to speak. But we still had some issues. We had housing issues. We're still clumped in a certain area, right? Mm-hmm. And which past, looking to the present, we can still see that, see that right? Yeah, a- absolutely. You know, when, when you look back even a little bit further, Beverly, when the black population was still pretty small back in the 1930s, when the federal government drew the what, what most people refer to as redlining maps, they were officially called residential security maps. And the area where every black person in Milwaukee lived was between North Avenue uh, to the north, Juno you know, to the south, 3rd Street to the east and 12th Street to the west. Literally every black person in Milwaukee lived in that little box. You couldn't live outside of that box if you were black because no one would rent to you. You certainly couldn't get a loan from the bank to buy a property. Regardless of how much money you had, you were stuck in that box. And, uh, you know, because of that, black people built their own kind of thriving business community there on Walnut Street. Uh, Milwaukee was was, uh, a a city with a a small black population that was doing you know, fairly well uh, in 1950, we had the highest per capita black business ownership rate in the country, uh, thriving businesses. But most people will tell you that the freeway came and destroyed the Walnut Street businesses, but it didn't. Actually, the first urban renewal project in Milwaukee was the Hillside Urban Renewal Project, and it literally bulldozed everything from 6th to 10th Street on Walnut Street. So half of the black-owned businesses in Milwaukee were destroyed. Uh, and we, at that particular time, really the only way we could get a loan for a home or a business was through Columbia Savings and Loan, the bank that was started by the Halliards, because mm. most of the uh, traditional banks wouldn't give us loans. So we prospered. We did okay. Uh, but we still had struggles with the schools being segregated uh, in, in the mid-1960s, 1965. Attorney Lloyd Barbie filed a lawsuit uh, against the Milwaukee public schools for being um, you know, illegally uh, segregated. We had a, a, a massive uh, boycott by students, black students, boycotted Milwaukee public schools in 1964. Uh, so those are some of the issues, and we were still trying to fight for an open housing ordinance with some teeth in it. There was an mm-hmm. ordinance... But it, it, it was very weak. And so Vail Phillips, uh, when she snuck into becoming the first female on the Milwaukee Common Council, people actually thought she was a man because she didn't put her picture on any of her literature, right? They were like, Smart oh, Vail. Woman. And her was name wasn't Vail, right? Right. So they thought it was a man. So she snuck in. Mm-hmm. And I remember she told me the first time, you know, <laughs> the people on the Common Council found out she was a woman. They were not very happy, especially knowing she was a black woman. But she pushed through uh, each, each year. She pushed legislation to pass a federal fair housing or a, a local fair housing ordinance, and she was defeated 18 to 1 every time. Uh, so we had the open housing marches, um, and that eventually led to us being in, in the national spotlight because of the segregated nature of Milwaukee. Uh, and so what ends up happening eventually is that they pass a federal fair housing law Um, they passed a local housing ordinance. The state already had uh, a law in the books as well from the early Mm -hmm. 60s. But Milwaukee was a really important part of the civil rights movement, and people don't tend to know that. And, you know, when I was a teacher, I was a teacher for eight years. I used to 
talk about Milwaukee's role in the in the civil rights movement and how important that role was leading to the passage of the Federal Fair Housing Act in 1968, a week after uh, Dr. King's assassination. Wow. Speaking of that, um, and the Fair Housing marches, marches, a lot of young people were involved in that. And I remember you talking about a while ago as, as a teacher trying to, you know, we get the Black History Month and people talk about Martin Luther King, Rosa Parks, you know, they're wonderful people, but there's so much more to the story. And you were talking about wanting to engage young people in this. And you would talk about what people their age that were important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, one of the, the, the things that used to irritate me uh, about Black History Month, and still does, it, it's, it's become Black Trivia Month instead mm-hmm. of Black History Month. And so, you know, the students, listen, they know all about Martin Luther King, Rosa Parks, and Malcolm X. They, they're tired of hearing those same stories because they hear about them every year. So one of the things that I tried to do to engage my students was I said, listen, uh, there were there were young people that were a big part of the civil rights movement. When you look at Dr. King's campaign in Birmingham, most of the people who were arrested in, in those marches were actually children. Uh, and so I would show them video of the Birmingham campaign, and I wouldn't tell them, you know, what to look for. I said, you know, just take some notes on what you see. And invariably, we'd have a conversation, and somebody would say, Mr. Jackson, I saw a lot of kids getting arrested. And I said, oh, really? Uh, so what do you think about that? And we get into this long conversation, and they'd be like, man, these kids were, were, were a really important part of the civil rights movement. And I said, okay, so now let's look at Milwaukee. Let's look at those open housing marches in Milwaukee. Let's look at some of the images and some of the video and tell me what you see there. And once again, man, Mr. Jackson, it's a lot of kids. What are those kids doing? I said, listen, the kids didn't have anything to fear. Their parents did. You know, they could lose their jobs, their homes. But the kids were like, we don't have anything to fear. And they were really uh, the, the, the most important component of those marches being the size that they were. The NAACP Youth Council. You know, we hear about Father Grappi and mm-hmm. Vail Phillips, but we don't hear about, you know, those members of the NAACP Youth Council in Milwaukee. They were the ones that had the boots on the ground in the civil rights movement in Milwaukee. And so when I showed the students that, Beverly, they were like, man. They were they were they were powerful, Mr. Jackson. I'm like, so what are you? If they were powerful, what are you? And they're like, well, we're powerful too. I'm like, well, show me how powerful you are. Oh, wow. Show me that you have the same mindset that they had. That you're not going to allow, uh, you know, Milwaukee or uh, you know our society in general to disrespect you. That you're going to make your voices be heard. Uh, you know, I try to, to to teach them to be advocates for themselves and to be what I call change agents mm-hmm. in the world around us. And, and that was a way to get them engaged. Otherwise, they, man, come on, Mr. Jackson, we're talking about Martin Luther King. We, we can recite his, his I Have a Dream speech in our sleep. Yeah. Tell us about something else. Yeah, absolutely. What do you think needs to, the biggest issue confronting Milwaukee right now? Jobs, I would think, would be high on the list affordable, uh, well-paying jobs, I should say. Beverly, I, I've been shouting from, from the rooftops for years that, that what changed in Milwaukee from 1970 till today is that the really good jobs went away. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, those high-paying factory jobs at A.O. Smith and Pabst Brewing and Schlitz Brewing and Harness Vega, those jobs were in abundance 
And when they went away, they were replaced by jobs that are service sector jobs that don't pay nearly as much money. And so, you know, people try to give me 50 million reasons why, oh, we need to fix this. I'm like, listen, money fixes a lot of stuff. When people have money in their pocket, when they have disposable income, uh, they they can live the so-called American dream. But when they don't, listen, I, I know so many people that are working two and three jobs. When I was a kid, nobody worked two and three jobs other than people who maybe worked at a factory. And guess what? They open up a little mom and pop grocery store. Mm-hmm. So now the family, their children work in the grocery store. You know, dad and mom are working in the factory. And so those little mom and pop grocery stores in throughout the black community, were supported uh, by those factory jobs because they gave people disposable income. Right. And until you give people decent amounts of money, then you're going to continue to see all of the things that come from people having a lack of money. I tell people poverty, you know, we try to define poverty in all these different, you know, very uh, big language about poverty. Listen, poverty is not having enough money. That's what poverty is. Bottom line, and, right? And, and the bottom line <laughs> is that the, the minimum wage, you know, they're arguing about, oh, we need to raise the minimum wage to $15. The only reason they're arguing that they should raise the minimum wage to $15 is because it's been over a decade since they moved it to $7.25 an hour. If they would have just moved it a little bit at a time, we wouldn't have to go from $7.25 an hour to 15 and have this right. extreme, like, oh, my goodness, that's too much, and these businesses can't afford it. If they would have done it a little bit at a time, gradually, we wouldn't have to have this argument about $15 an hour because it would probably be something like $13 an hour, and they're trying to move it to $15 an hour, which isn't that extreme. But because we've left it for over a decade, uh, the last time minimum wage was increased was when Barack Obama was president. And so, uh, you know, his first term, not his second term, right. his first term. Right. And, you know, I, I always say that until we're able to get people access to the high quality jobs, a lot of high quality jobs in Milwaukee are out in the suburban and exurban communities. Right. Uh, and people don't have access because they don't have transportation to get out there. We don't have a, a regional transit authority like they have in Chicago, New York, that can get you to all of these faraway places in the suburbs and exurbs. Um, and, and an additional thing, and I shared this with people, and it shocks people, that, that white people in Milwaukee are 36% of the population, but they have 71% of the jobs in the city of Milwaukee. Black people are 38% of the population. They only have about 21% of the jobs in the city of Milwaukee. And Latinos are about 19%, almost 19% of the residents of Milwaukee, but they only have 9.5% of the jobs. So every day, prior to COVID, this is what would happen, Beverly. And you, if you got on the freeway, you would see it. Mm-hmm. You see uh, like 66,000 white people who live in the suburbs and exurbs driving into the city of Milwaukee to work. And then going back out to the suburbs and exurbs at the end of the day. And at the same time, they're driving into the city. You got like 33,000 blacks driving out to the suburbs to go to work. 9,000 Latinos driving out to the suburbs to go to work. And that that's a problem. It, it's yeah, called yeah. a spatial mismatch in jobs. But nobody addresses the fact that, you know, black people are, and Latinos are highly underrepresented in terms of the jobs in the city of Milwaukee. So people have to go other places. They can't get the jobs here. They have to go other places. And that is is really, to me, that's the fix for a lot of the mm-hmm. ills that, that Milwaukee has. You know, the tax base will increase. Uh, I always tell people that every time you run over a pothole, you're running over a pothole because of poverty, because we spend exorbitant amounts of money trying to help people who are dealing with poverty in their lives. Wow. Wow. You know, we've run out of time, and which is, is 
you know, bad because I have so many areas that um, I would like to talk to you about. I know eventually you're going to have your own podcast and you're going to be talking about all this stuff, but I would love for you to come back again. And Beverly, all, all you have to do is send the invite and okay. I'll be back Any, <laughs> okay. anytime, anytime. I'm, you know, I've, I've been a, a big fan of your work for a number of years. I've, I've, I've always admired, you know, your professionalism and, and the topics that you touch on in your work. And uh, a big fan, listen, to me, it, it's, uh, I, I feel grateful that you want me to be on your podcast. So please, please uh, send the invitation and I will be back uh, with you and your team. Uh, Want to, you know, talk about these issues. And, you know, there's, there's a million other things we could talk about. Yes. So I'm really enjoying it and definitely look forward to coming back again. And then when I start my podcast, I will invite you to come on my podcast as well. So this quid pro go. quo will work. Okay. Okay. okay, sounds good to me. Thank you so much. Reggie Jackson, who is the co-founder, um, uh, let me get it right, of Nurturing Diversity Partners. And if somebody wants to get more information about this, where should they go? They can go to our website at nurturingdiversity.us. Um, and they can also find me on Facebook. I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, they can read uh, the column that I write for the Milwaukee Independent uh, at milwaukeeindependent.com as well. Okay, and I should also so mention that they can find you on YouTube as well because you have a few yeah. things on there. Huh. Yeah, there, there's several videos of me on YouTube as well. Yeah, yeah. I think you did a TEDx talk. Yeah, I did a, a TEDx talk uh, talking about what I learned from a lynching survivor about anger. Mm. That's a good one. All right. Well, thank you, Reggie. Enjoy your the rest of your day. But again, we'll see you back here in the near future. Absolutely, Beverly. Thank you once again. Sure thing. And thank you for joining us for another episode of the 411 Live. Remember, we're a nonprofit organization. If you would like to support us, go to our website, the411live.org. Until next time, I'm Beverly Taylor. This is the 411 Live. Real people, real talk. If you would like to check out past episodes, there are many ways. Go to your favorite podcast platform. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Like and watch us on Facebook. Watch and subscribe to our YouTube channel. And if you have suggestions for future episodes, go to our website, the411live.org. 